Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and, and if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, or you don't have an iPhone that has a Bible app, which is probably like half you guys, there's, uh, there's Bibles scattered throughout the seating area. And we would love for you just to take that with you, use it today, but also take it with you if you don't have one. Uh, that would be our gift to you. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, just continuing on the line of thought that we've been tracing out for the last several weeks in this study of, of this really, really important letter. What we said last week is that this, this passage we've just now come into, really is at the beginning of chapter 3, and that's going to carry us on through the next couple chapters, is a really long application section. The author of this letter has been doing some hardcore theology up to this point. He's been explaining in detail what makes Jesus so glorious, and in particular, what makes Jesus worth holding on to in the face of lots of other options. He's writing to friends of his who are facing the real threat to their lives that identifying with Jesus poses, and, and they're, de- they're tempted to let it all go, to trade in Jesus for something that would be easier, would maybe be more comfortable for them, or would provide them more security in this life. His approach from the beginning has been to try to keep that from happening by describing Jesus in such beautiful language, with such vivid imagery, that no one would want to leave him, even if, even if it cost them their lives in this world. That's where we've been so far. But now we're into this section where he, he takes this portrait of Jesus that he's already drawn for us, and he tries to work it in. He tries to, to tease out the implications of it for practical living. He says, here's what's true about Jesus, so therefore you should do this. Last week we looked at the first section of this longer, of this longer part of the letter, and, and we noticed there that his, his example for us was Jesus. Look at his faithfulness and be faithful yourself. Because he was faithful for you, that should give you power to be faithful as you follow him. And this week, he changes gears just a little bit, and he offers a negative example. So if Jesus and Moses are examples of, of faithfulness in action, what we look at this morning is an example of a generation who was faithless who turned from, from, from following God and who therefore represent what it looks like in practice to give in to all of these competing options that they were faced with. It's really an expose on what our disease is as humans. I think that's one way to look at it. You know, people sometimes have misconceptions about the Christian life, that, that to, to be identified with Jesus means that you don't struggle with sin anymore. I know that's a really... Uh, simplistic way of looking at it, but I, I do think people out there, people out there who feel that way about it, that Christians think they're past a problem of sin, but that is not the way the New Testament looks at it at all. It, it paints us, as, as the picture of our lives in Christ, as one of war, as one of battle with the sin that's even now being defeated by a power that it can't withstand, but that's still in us and still tugs at us. Scripture uses the imagery of, of war. I think another image, though, that helps us, and the one that I really want to pursue this morning is the image of a disease, of, of our sin, of the, the, the temptation to leave Jesus behind as something that we carry around with us, as, as a sort of disease that, that may be latent at certain times, but that's always with us, always tugging and pulling at us. I think this passage is a, an in, gives us insight into what our disease looks like and into what it would look like to cure this disease, at the very least to fight back against it. 
with everything that we've got. Now, I, I know I'm kind of, this is dangerous for me to use this disease and cure language because like half of you guys have medical training and are actually working in hospitals right now. And I'm just going to go ahead and apologize right now in case I take this analogy in directions that are not actually factual. But, um, but you, you guys will bear with me and know that I have no practical knowledge of the world whatsoever that's beyond stuff I've read in books. We're going to go with it. This, is the, this passage is about our disease, what it's like, what sin does to us, what it looks like, and where it comes from. And it's about our cure, what we can do to push back against this disease. Now, if you found the passage, Hebrews chapter 3, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from, from his word? We're going to read verses 7 through 19 of Hebrews 3. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with our disease. It certainly takes most of the passage. Our author spends most of his time in this paragraph explaining what sin looks like and what makes it so dangerous. One thing that I hope jumped out as we were reading through it is how often the problem that we're being warned against here is, is referred to as a problem of the heart. Did you see how often that is? It's in the, it comes up twice in the quotation from Psalm 95 at the beginning of this paragraph. It comes up again as soon as the author starts to apply this paragraph. The heart comes up as the seat of our problem. And I want to say this to, just to start out because I know that we misunderstand what, what heart means. Our, our culture sees it in a different way. And we think of it as a Valentine's thing, right? Heart candies with little messages written on them. Or we think about it, we associate it with romance and love. But in this ancient world, heart was much more full than that as a concept. It was much more about the, the seat of the affections, of the emotions, of the will, of desire, the, what, what leads to action. It is the person and, and what you value. It's, it's inside of you that guides the things that you do on the outside. So what the author is doing here by highlighting this heart as the seat of our problem is saying basically what Jesus said in many different times in his own teaching, that bad fruit comes from bad trees. Good fruit comes from good trees. That the problem of sin is not one that's outside that we can protect ourselves from by isolating ourselves, but the problem really is inside of us. It's a heart condition. 
That's what we're looking at this morning. Our disease is a heart condition. And I think that this passage helps us in, in two, on two levels. I think that first it's going to help us see what this heart condition looks like or what you medical folks might say it's presenting symptoms, how it presents itself. I think that's the example of the wilderness generation. That's where that gets us. But then we want to also take a step further and say, where does it come from? What is the, what is the disease itself that leads to these presenting symptoms? We want to look at how does it look in practice, and then where does it come from? That's where our author takes us. So, so how does it look in practice? I think that the primary description we get of what, of what this sin problem, this disease looks like, is hard-heartedness. You notice how, how often that came up? Hard-heartedness. And it, and it gets us, we get there, he gets us there through giving us Psalm 95 as an example. Now, Psalm 95 is this long quotation at the beginning of this paragraph. And what it's referring back to is part of the story of Israel after they came out of Egypt. Remember that story? They see these amazing displays of God's mercy to them and his power to save They see the plagues that are poured out on those who held them in captivity. They see the Red Sea parted in front of them as they were facing certain death at the hands of Pharaoh's army. They see that same sea close in on the army and prevent them from following. They see God provide them food out of the sky and water out of rocks. They see amazing evidence of God's power to save and his love for them. And yet, their story is a comedy of errors. As soon as as they leave Egypt, things just start to fall apart. Almost from the get-go, they are questioning God repeatedly. They they turn to, as soon as Moses leaves them for just a little while, they they build their own idol, like one they would have seen in Egypt, and start worshiping it. As soon as they reach the promised land and and, and at at the edges of it, look in and see these massive guys who are guarding it, they think, oh, we must not be able to take it. So they disobey God and, and want to go their own way. They, they look back to Egypt as this glory age in their, in their history and want to go back. The point is that at every turn, this generation was a failure. In spite of all that they'd seen, they didn't obey God. And it's easy for us, I think, to look at them and say, how in the world could you fall prey to this? Look at what you saw. Look at all the things that God did in your own experience that you saw with your own eyes. Not that you read about, but that you saw. This is the generation that was delivered from Egypt. I think the problem is a hard heart. They couldn't see what God had done for them because their hearts had been steeled against any evidence that might challenge their unbelief. They were so used to, had developed such a habit of questioning God and of going their own way instead, that nothing could penetrate that hardness. I think that's the presenting symptom of our disease. It, it, we become so used to sin, become so habit-forming in us, that we, we're resistant to any kind of challenge to it. We just don't even see it anymore. It's like we're blind. I think there's, there's plenty of examples we could go with that would help us to see how we do this, how we're actually guilty of the same thing we can't imagine Israel being guilty of. I want to give you one example just from, from headlines, and then maybe we'll tease some out from our own experience. But just as a way of seeing how current this is, um, actually, I guess this, this headline is not exactly current. It's about 10 years ago, but still. There's this guy named Joseph Ellis um, who wrote a couple of really, really important history books. He wrote them for po- popular audience, sold millions of copies. One of them called Founding Brothers. Maybe he made a movie out of it. I don't remember. 
He won the Pulitzer Prize, right, for this book. But then, like, I think it was like 10 years ago, he gets busted for plagiarizing. Not really even plagiarizing, but more making up stories about himself that were not true and telling them as if they had happened to him in his classes on Vietnam in, in, in the college where he taught. He was stripped of his title as professor, of his salary. He was be- basically benched for a year. This guy was telling stories as if he had fought in Vietnam when really he spent the war teaching at West Point. That was his military service, was to teach history at West Point. He was telling about times on the ground, like as a, as his, as a platoon leader into battle, going into battle, ahead, leading men, you know, fighting and having bullets fly all around. He was telling stories as if they happened to him, and they didn't. He never really addressed this and how he could justify it, but the, the one time he did publish a sort of apology, what he said was, I mean, this is kind of lame, but it helps us get at how, how someone could justify this to themselves, how it could happen. He said that initially someone assumed that he went to Vietnam and he let it stand. And by the end of it, he wasn't just letting those assumptions stand, he was actually confirming them and affirming them. And then by the end, he's actually making up stories to give it some life. And you can imagine when he first heard that, when he first heard someone assume that he went to Vietnam and fought, he didn't start telling stories at that point, right? He just sort of let it go. He liked the way it made him feel, you know? It, it made him feel like a stud instead of an academic egghead. And then, he, and then maybe he, based on what other people had assumed, he, he starts to suggest things based on his knowledge also of Vietnam and what would be plausible. He starts to almost associate himself with what happened over there. And then I mean, who knows what steps were taken along that way, but by the end, he's telling vivid stories, and it doesn't even seem wrong to him anymore. I mean, we think when we hear it and in the, when we see it in the final product, we think, how in the world could a historian of all people, someone whose job is to dig up truth from the past, be telling stories about himself that aren't true? And it, the reason is that he had a hard heart. By that point, he had a habit. And he'd gotten so used to it through little steps along the way that he lost all self-awareness and gave himself over to it. And isn't that exactly how we fall into patterns of sin? There's so many that work this way. I think, I think the, the main point is that sin is habit-forming, that eventually it starts to impair your judgment so where you can't even see clearly anymore. It's a, a hard-heartedness that gets used to resisting God's will and therefore doesn't mind doing it anymore. Isn't that exactly how lust works, for example? How sometimes you, you're offended at the idea that anyone could look at, fill in the blank an image for yourself. But then you find yourself looking at an image longer than you should. And then maybe it's letting a, a movie or something go on a little bit longer than it should. And then maybe it's something you find on YouTube. And every time you take another step, the steps behind you become less and less. The ones that, that would have originally seemed unthinkable now become new, the new normal. And every time you justify another step, you're able to justify entirely different practices because they seem not much worse, or I know someone else who's even worse than I am. This doesn't really qualify as that sort of sin. And eventually you end up with a hard heart. Eventually you end up with an addiction, a, a different way of, of seeing things. Your judgment is now compromised. That's the way sin works on us. That's what it looks like in practice. It's an impaired judgment. Or here's the way, here's the way one author put it that I thought was, was very helpful. His, his name is Cornelius Planting. He teaches, or maybe he's the president actually of Calvin College. 
he wrote this really important book on sin and how to recognize it, what it looks like, where it comes from. And here's what he says about this, this hard-hearted effect, the effect of sin on just changing what seems right to us and, and, and taking over us through habits. Here's what he said. We're like people whose abuse of alcohol ruins not only their liver, but also their judgment and their will. The things, and this is the key, it ruins the things that might have kept them from further abuse of alcohol, right? The same pattern holds for everybody, he writes. We now sin because we're sinners, because we have a habit, and because the habit has damaged our judgment and will. I think ultimately we're not that much different than this wilderness generation. As hard as it is for us to imagine what Psalm 95 is talking about here, people who saw God deliver them in their own experience, turning from him, really, we could, make, we could and we actually do make the same sorts of justifications for our sins and ultimately leads to habits and then to not even knowing we've got a problem. That's sins presenting symptoms. That's our disease, what it looks like. But perhaps the main concern of this author is, is not exactly these visible symptoms themselves, but at helping us to get at where these symptoms come from the underlying disease that gives rise to presenting symptoms like these. That's really where he goes with most of his own commentary. I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading through the passage, but the first several verses that we read are a straight-up quote from a psalm, from Psalm 95. And then in verse 12, he starts to comment on it. He's He's a preacher, ultimately. He has a sermon text, and then he explains what it means and why it matters. So from verse 12 all the way to verse 19, he's explaining the importance of Psalm 95. And where he goes at the very beginning in verse 12, and again in verse 19, in case you missed it, to bracket his point, his introduction and his conclusion focus on one thing that help us get at the nature of our disease, and it's this. It's unbelief. Do you notice that in verse 12? Take care, based on the example of this wilderness generation, Psalm 95, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Then he goes on in the passage to to explain more, to give them some more encouragement, and then he comes back to their example again. In verse 15, he he quotes Psalm 95 again, and he says, and then through some questions that he asks in verses 16, 17, and 18, he's like, you remember back to these guys? Who were they? They were the ones who saw what God did for them, and why did they not get into the rest? Verse 19 explains it because of unbelief. So for us to really get at the message of this author, what he's trying to communicate, we've got to understand how it is that unbelief is a root cause of these hard hearts that we know from our own experience, that we see in Joseph Ellis and in the wilderness generation. How does unbelief connect to what sin looks like when it takes hold of us? Because ultimately, as you know, for any kind of cure to be effective, it's got to properly understand the disease that it's fighting. And it's got to hit not the symptoms, but the root itself to really be effective. I think that another, to, to help us understand what, what unbelief means and, and why it's the root of sin, I think another medical analogy may help us. Uh, one of the, obviously one of the biggest threats to global health right now is the uh, pandemic of AIDS. I remember the first time I heard about AIDS, I remember it like it was yesterday, was seeing Mike, uh, Magic Johnson's press conference. Was that true for anybody else? Did, come, did, did HIV and AIDS come on anybody else's radar from, from Magic Johnson, famous basketball player who announced that he had AIDS and uh, maybe 
90 or 92, somewhere in there, maybe 92 or 93 after the Dream Team, anyway. I remember just getting those acronyms in my mind and not, I mean, just trying to get my mind around them and what kind of disease this was. And I remember the panic that was sweeping. It seemed like the 90s were really a time of panic about this fairly new and, uh, and poorly understood disease. And then, of course, now we know of it mostly through Africa because it's sweeping that continent like wildfire. And what kind of disease is AIDS? Do you know what it stands for? It stands for, it stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. All right, medical guys out there, was Wikipedia right about that? Is that what it stands for? Okay. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. AIDS is dangerous not because it itself is going to kill you, but because it is going to make you susceptible to other things that are going to kill you. It tears down your body's defense system, and it makes these, um, these viruses and infections, uh, especially, I guess, infections, uh, it, makes, it makes sort of a hothouse environment where they can thrive and take over your body, where a normal body that's unaffected by AIDS would be able to fight them off without much threat. It's a problem of the immune system. It's a problem of the defense system that our body has. I think that unbelief acts as a kind of AIDS in our spiritual lives. It tears down our immune system, and it makes us vulnerable to all kinds of individual sins. I think he's tracing the presenting symptoms of Psalm 95 and the wilderness generation back to a problem of an unbelieving heart because a failure to fully believe in God that God is who he says that he is, that his promises are trustworthy, that we can stake our lives to what he says he'll do for us. The problem is that when you stop to believe him, when he describes himself in that way, you start to go your own way, right? You start to think that you can do better on your own or through some other resource than you can do with God and trusting his promises. It's unbelief that makes them want the golden calf, right? They think that the golden calf can provide them something that Yahweh could not. Or it's, it's unbelief that makes them think that Yahweh cannot deliver the promised land to them in spite of the fact that it's guarded by these giants. They think these giants are too big for him. And so they want to go back to Egypt because Egypt promises them security that God can't. They, they don't believe, and that's why they sin. Unbelief, a failure to trust that God is who he says and will do what he promises, is, the, is what we might say the precondition for any decision to turn away from him, to give in to sin, and to allow that chain reaction to take place that ultimately ends in a hard heart. Now, I want to give us a couple examples of this just before we move on. I really don't want you to miss this point. It's the, it is the main point of this passage, that unbelief is our biggest threat that provides a hothouse environment for sin to, to thrive. A couple of examples just how this works. It might help it stick a little bit better. Think back to the original fall story in Genesis chapter 3. It's the Bible story of where sin comes from. Think back to the sequence of events and how it worked. This is a familiar story to you. You've got Adam and Eve, these prototypes for all of humanity, these representatives of all who will come after them. They're placed in this garden, a place that has everything they're going to need to survive, not just survive, but to be happy to have joy and peace and rest. And God has promised them that they will, have, they will need for nothing. They'll want for nothing. He says, look at this. Look at this garden full of fruit trees, and they're all yours. Except this one. We don't know why that one was set apart. We don't need to know. All we need to know is that God says, I'm going to give you everything you need, 
And I'm going to need you to trust me on that. And the way that I'm going to test whether you trust me on that is you're not going to touch this one over here. Okay? How do they end up falling? What does the, the, the serpent, who's this personification of evil, tell to Adam and Eve that gets them to finally take the bite? Isn't it that he begins by questioning God's promises to them, what God told them? He starts in on them by saying, did God really say that if you eat this, you're going to die? Did God really say that? Can you really believe that God is good to his word? By the end, they've made a decision that what God said would not happen. They decide to disobey because they no longer believe that God is who he said that he was and that he would do what he said he would do. Their sin is a product of unbelief. Or another example, I mean, to use the example of this passage of Hebrews 3, think about the wilderness generation. God had given them everything that they needed. That he had delivered them from these, this external threat from Pharaoh's army that was coming after them. He had given them food in the middle of a desert. He had given them water out of rocks. He had promised them that he was their God. And if they would be his people, trust him instead of anybody, anyone else, that he would give them everything that they needed. And he had to this point. He had, he had proven himself on that. But they failed because over time, the manna that had been provided to them seemed not to compare with the delicacies of Egypt. God's chosen provision for them seemed less desirable to them than what they could get somewhere else. They conveniently forgot about the weight of their slavery experience and started to emphasize the kinds of food that they might enjoy there, the security that they had there. And so what they did was disbelieve that God could really provide for them, that he could satisfy them in the way that he promised. And unbelief tore down their defense system, and they yielded to sin. Isn't that exactly what we do anytime we give in to sin? Think about it. Let's just take a couple examples. Think about the sin of coveting, right? Made it into the Ten Commandments, because it's such a basic human instinct to look at what other people have and to want it. Grass is always greener, right? But isn't coveting, isn't giving in to that particular sin, doesn't it require you first to have failed to believe fully? Don't you first have to stop believing that God is wise enough to give you exactly what you need for that moment? That God ultimately has your best interests in mind and is powerful enough to secure them? Isn't coveting what someone else has just first a failure to believe in God and that he's for you? You say the same thing about complaining, right? When we complain, we give in to that. It's so natural for us. We all do it. Aren't we really saying that when we complain, aren't we really saying that we wouldn't have done it this way if we were God? We wouldn't have chosen these circumstances to put ourselves into? We ultimately know better than God does? Isn't that a kind of unbelief that we're susceptible to before we actually get to the problem, the sin, the action of complaining? Ultimately, we face the same danger as the wilderness generation. Like them, we live in between a deliverance, a spiritual deliverance, an experience of the gospel, in between that and the actual fulfillment of the things that we look forward to, the promises that are ours in Jesus. And in between, in that time, that in-between time, we are always going to be susceptible to unbelief, 
to not believing God can deliver on the promises that he's made to us. And when we give in to unbelief, it creates an environment in which all these other sins flourish. That's the nature of our disease, according to this passage. It's a sinful, unbelieving heart that leads to hard hearts and to lives that are habit-forming and justifying of all sorts of sins. If, if that's the nature of our problem, according to Hebrews 3, thankfully, we're not left without a solution. Now, I said already that most of this passage we're looking at this morning is given to, to sort of diagnosing the disease, and that's true. But there's also stuff in here about how we can fight back, a sort of cure. And we know not to expect to be free from the influence of sin or the tendency to, to unbelief at any time during this life. That, that just isn't, isn't in the cards for us. We're always going to struggle. But that said, we have a way to fight, and this, this text points us in the right direction. I mean, obviously, we've got to start by seeing the disease for what it is, that it's rooted in unbelief. And, and once we see that, we get to, once we know what our root problem is, then we've got to apply our medicine to that root problem. If we spend all of our time just trying to contain these visible outward sins that are presenting symptoms of our disease, then we might see some success, you know, and, and I'm not saying you don't try. You, you definitely want to get structures in place that restrain the sin that you're tempted to. But if that's all you do, then the growth you're going to see is very limited because you're allowing the underlying disease to thrive and to continue to, to flourish and provide an environment for other, other symptoms. What we want to do is attack the root. So how do we do that? I think that, that Hebrews chapter 3 helps us understand a medicine for attacking unbelief and also helps us understand the means of applying that medicine to ourselves. The medicine is an affection for Jesus, a deeper connection to and love for his gospel. And the way we apply that, according to this passage, one of the ways, one of the main ways, and, and the one that this author gives us, is through community. We apply it to each other. I want to read... Uh, Read verse 12 again for you. Remember, this is, this is right after he's read his sermon text, basically. And now he's started in on his message for his, for his readers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's your disease, unbelief that leads you to fall away. 13 is the cure. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the verse we've got to understand. We have to. This is, this, is the, this is our only hope. I want to start with the medicine and then talk about how, it's, how it gets applied. The medicine that, 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 gets, that, that is effective at fighting back on this disease of unbelief is really the medicine that this whole book has been meant to apply to us. Think about this. And this, is, this is not in verse 13, but it's, it's the point of the letter so far. He is writing to friends that he knows are tempted to leave Jesus. They're tempted to unbelief, in other words. And he's writing to try to make them hold on, hold on through the pressure, even if it costs you your life. And his method for doing that, what he tells them to get them to hold on, is look at Jesus, consider him. Think about all these things that are listed out in chapters 1 and 2 about, that are true of Jesus. All these amazing truths that, that make this a, a, a provider of salvation that you can stake your life to. Look at Jesus. I think the reason he does that, 
The reason he's drawn this picture for us is that he knows the only way to fix unbelief is to replace it with a deep belief. And that what deep belief in God is going to look like is a, an affection for the way God has described himself to us, for the, the, the things that he has shown us in the way that he's treated us that prove he loves us, he's for us, and that he will not allow anything to stand against us. And what is the consistent message of the New Testament, if not, that the love of God for us is proven more clearly than it ever could be anywhere else in the fact that he has come to us himself in the person of Jesus and that he has laid down his own life to make us holy. And if he was willing to go to those lengths, then there is nothing that can separate us from God's love in Jesus. The point is, if you want to root out unbelief and a conviction that God is not trustworthy, you've got to prove as much as you can that he is trustworthy. And how are you going to prove that he's trustworthy unless you really latch on to the ultimate evidence of his care for you, and that is Jesus? In other words, to root out unbelief, you've got to replace it. You can't just starve it. You have to replace it with a new affection. It's what Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. It's, something we, it's a concept we talk about a lot around here. The expulsive power of a new affection. That if you can replace at the center of your heart this tendency to unbelief with an overwhelming, powerful affection for Jesus and what he offers, then the things that you were going to be tempted to, this sort of hardening process that, that, that is the presenting symptom of sin, those things are not going to be attractive to you anymore because they've been replaced by something that looks more beautiful, that looks more life-worthy and life-giving. You need a new affection. You can treat your symptoms and try really hard to stop lusting or lying or whatever it is, but... The only true success is going to come from rooting out the cause, from, from fixing why it is that you're prone to wander. If the root cause is that you don't really believe, then you've got to replace that unbelief with a deep faith in and affection for Christ. Now, briefly before moving on to how we apply this medicine, this Jesus affection-oriented medicine, I want to address what some of you may be thinking, that this sounds great. In theory, but it's really hard, right? This sort of conjuring up a new affection for Jesus is not something, it's not a switch that you just flip. We want that, but we fail to, to see it as a reality in our practice. I'm sure I'm not the only one for whom that's true. I'm not getting many head nods, but I'm sure you guys are out there. And I think one of the, thing, one of the reasons we're prone to doubt is that we see, okay, the Bible tells us that if we have an affection for Jesus, then he will satisfy us and nothing else will, and yet we still have these things that we want other than Jesus, things that seem more desirable than Jesus. So doesn't that mean that the promises of the Bible that Jesus satisfied aren't true? Because it's not easy to be satisfied in Jesus, aren't we tempted to think maybe Jesus just isn't satisfying in the way that other things might be? We can't fall prey to that any more than you can fall prey to the sort of naive assumption that marriage should be easy if it's really based on love. That love, or maybe to put it differently, that love itself should be easy if it's true love. I've just started reading this, this uh, book by Tim Keller about marriage. There's a copy back here on the, on the resource table. It's highly recommended. It's great so far. And one of the th first things that he talks about in the first chapter is, is this trend in America against getting married, 
lots of, there's, there's much lower percentage of the folks who are getting married these days. And one of the causes that he identifies is that we just have these unrealistic expectations of what true love has to be. That if it's hard, if you ever have any kind of conflict, then it must not be true love that a marriage can last on. Because if it was true love, then it would all be smooth sailing. And we know, especially those of us who are married, that, that true love is deeper and better than that, and it's also much harder than that. And I think we can say the same thing about our relationship with Christ. Just because it's not always easy to, to conjure up some sort of affection for him doesn't mean that he's going to satisfy. What it means is that we have a lot of competition inside of ourselves and that our enemy that's in us fights hard when he sees any threat to himself. And so when we try to do the things that are going to produce affection for Jesus that will root out our unbelief, he fights all the harder. We get him backed into a corner, so to speak, and he comes out swinging. Ultimately, I think the fact that it's so hard to get affection for Jesus to root out our unbelief is, a, is proof that that's what we need and that that's what our sinful hearts don't want us to do. It's always going to be a battle in this life. So don't give up. The resistance that our hearts put up, the resistance of our disease to the medicine of Jesus and affection for him, That's exactly why the next part of the cure is so important. Ultimately, we look to the whole point of Hebrews to get the medicine. If you want to fix the unbelief that causes you to sin, you've got to replace it with Jesus and an affection for him. But this passage, Hebrews 3, is much more focused on how to apply that medicine to ourselves. And that's in verse 13, which we just read together. If you don't want an evil, unbelieving heart that's going to lead you to fall away from from God, here's what you've got to do. You've got to exhort each other every day, as long as it's called today. We don't self-medicate, in other words. That wouldn't be enough. If we're called to live a Christian life on our own, we're dead in the water. But what, what's called for here is, is a vision of Christian community, where we shape ourselves around each other, knowing deeply how bad our problem is how bad our ongoing struggle with sin is going to be. And because we get how serious our problem is, we're not afraid to get into each other's lives, to work ourselves into the details. This is not a call to submit to your pastor in this passage. It's not, it's not the elder's responsibility to be exhorting. This is a call to everyone. Exhort one another. It's universal. It's a way of life that none of you be hardened point is we're gonna we got to keep each other from falling prey to our disease and it's a lifestyle now i know there are probably some of you out there thinking as you as you read that passage and hear what i'm saying that that sounds really dangerous right because you've probably been in part of church communities where people are very judgmental maybe maybe condescending or they they kind of gossip about others when they see flaws or they, they really get their kicks out of coming down on people all the time. Obviously, getting involved with each other's lives to challenge and encourage is dangerous and prone to abuse. And abuse is a problem, and we're not talking about abuse right here. But don't let our fear that this, will, that this good advice is going to be corrupted by human sin and desire for power and self-righteousness keep you from seeing the full weight of what he's calling for here. 
The point is that we have a responsibility to each other, and if sin is what we've described it, then we would be crazy to think that we didn't need this sort of involvement in each other's lives. If sin is as bad of a problem as what this passage says, then we would be crazy to think that we don't need other people exposing blind spots for us who love us enough to confront us and encourage us to love Jesus more. Let me, let me work this in with, with one final illustration. Um, and, and C.J. Mahaney is a pastor up in Baltimore, leader of a, a network of churches. He wrote this really good book called Humility. And one of the chapters, a chapter on inviting correction on, on as a, a way of life, trying to encourage other people that you know and trust to look at you carefully and to, and to offer you encouragement and correction, he gives this great example of why this is a loving thing to do, not an oppressive thing to do. This is, this is, he relates the example in the first person. He's quoting someone else. This didn't actually happen to CJ, but, but he read this somewhere. Of, some, of, of a man who was having breakfast in some sort of diner somewhere. And he sees a finely dressed man eating alone over at another table. He's a man who's got on his Armani suit. He's got a perfectly coordinated shirt and a power tie. His shoes are sparkling like he just got them shined. Every hair is perfectly in, his, in its place, including this magnificent, perfectly groomed mustache. He sat alone eating a bagel. As he was eating, he was nervously checking over these papers, and it was clear that he was getting ready for an important meeting. He had somewhere to be with people who mattered. He kept checking his Rolex watch, making sure he wouldn't be late. And then he stood up, and he prepared to leave, and it's then that the observer noticed it. A blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. I'm quoting now. He was about to go out into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? The point is that we're all prone to blind spots. We walk around with cream cheese all over us. And in fact, the presenting symptom of sin leads us to believe that that's the case. It's a hardening that keeps us from being able to see things clearly. We just don't have faculties of judgment that we can trust. And if that's true, what we need more than anything, once we've got the gospel in place, is someone who loves us enough to apply that gospel to us when they see something that we're blind to. The medicine of new affection for Christ only works as it's injected by somebody who understands that medicine, who sees the disease for what it is, and who isn't afraid to wade into it. That truth right there is the whole reason that we are here. If, if this was not necessary for fighting our disease, then we could all watch a lot better preaching than you're getting this morning online on YouTube somewhere. We could do it in our pajamas and never get out of the house. But that's not really what we need. We do need the gospel applied to us, but we need a lifestyle of people around us who know it well, who understand our hearts and can see us for what we are, who are not afraid to speak truth into our blind spots, into our hardened hearts who are, that are calloused against sin and recognizing it. So here's my final call to you. I wish we had ten more minutes uh, but for the sake of our dear child care workers, we're not going to take that. Here's my final call. Please seek out as a way of life 
discipleship-oriented relationships. Please start to see the other people who are here as spiritual, as targets for spiritual encouragement. They need you and you need them. Please have in your life, ask yourself this, do you have people who are further along than you are in your path of discipleship who, can, who know you well enough to speak truth to you? And is there anyone in your life who is not as far along as you are in their walk with Jesus, whom you are regularly seeking out to do them good spiritually? If not, I think that the, the point of, of three, chapter 3, verse 13, is that your discipleship isn't what it needs to be. That ultimately, if you aren't receiving encouragement and correction from somebody, your discipleship isn't what it needs to be. And if you aren't actively seeking to give encouragement and loving correction to other people, your discipleship isn't what it needs to be. So are you comfortable talking about your spiritual life? And are you seeking out individuals that will do this for you? If not, we want to help you. That's one of our most important values here, is to make sure that everyone has this kind of relationship in their lives. It's the only way to get the medicine in. Father, help us because this is an amazing vision that seems almost impossible to attain for ourselves. I mean, this, this sort of transparency is so unnatural. And the affections of our heart are so far removed from Jesus so often that, that sometimes our disease can seem overwhelming. I pray that you would help us to believe that you would give us a deeper faith that won't be thwarted by the ongoing presence of our spiritual aids in our lives. Would you help our church to be faithful in encouraging this kind of relationship? Would you protect us, please, from the self-righteousness that creeps in? Would you make us so obviously saturated by a love that's rooted in the gospel that this sort of encouragement, this sort of daily interaction about how we're doing seems beautiful and not oppressive. That's our prayer. And we leave it to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.